Lord, we know in the scriptures that uh, you appointed uh, godly people to accomplish your tasks, and you also put secular people to accomplish your tasks in certain places and times. I think of uh, the way you had Cyrus, uh, the king, in uh, the time that you wanted the temple and the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt, and you had a decree done by him to, uh, to favor God's people. I know this is a very uh, small incident in comparison to that, but the principle still lies that you can use whoever you want to accomplish your purposes, and we we're grateful that you sold that cabin for Mark and Cheryl. And so now we ask that you would uh, grant safe passage for Dave to get across the border. And um, may he come across at a time when uh, whoever's in control at the border would be someone that would be in favor for them and that uh, the timing would work out perfect in their favor as well. So we ask you, God, to oversee this and to, uh, again, sustain Mark and Cheryl, who will be trusting you, but at the same time feeling the emotions of being a human. The anxiety and stress and, and things come along with these types of decisions because I know they want to be home, they want to be here with us, and they can't be, and that plays into it too. So, yeah, just be their source of comfort at this time and grant them favor in Christ's name. Amen. Good. Okay, well, why don't you t uh, turn to um, Acts chapter 4 while I get set up. Okay, look at uh, verse 36. Acts 4 and 36, why don't we stand and read the word of God. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means sons of thunder, sons of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's sit down. <laughs> That was quick. <laughs> That's all we're going to read, church. No joke. <laughs> no trick. So. so today we're going to do something a little different in our sermon this morning that we have not done for a while. And this is a character study. A character study or an autobiography. Yeah, character studies are one of my favorite things to do because it gives us a, an overarching view or a big picture of an individual's faith journey with God. And it helps us compare our stories to, to their stories to see how God worked similarly in our lives as he did in theirs, uh, both through uh, our faithfulness and even our unfaithfulness and how God works all things in those ways. Now, I think it's important to also do character studies because the Bible is not afraid to highlight people's strengths, but also their faults, right? If you wanted to make up a fake story, you just show all the positive things that happened in someone's life. But the Bible doesn't do that. It gives a very raw picture of what uh, following Christ can look like. And so, um, again, Barnabas is one of these guys. Barnabas has an inc incredible story of faith, and he's a model to us in many ways. And, uh, but he also had one moment of um, weakness and failure before God as well. And so we want to like, explore his life and to see where we can emulate him and also where uh, we can learn from him as well. So the Bible records nothing about Barnabas' upbringing, who his parents were, his siblings, uh, what he did uh, for work originally. But the first real glimpse we get of his background is found in the verses we just read. In uh, 
verse uh, 36, we learn here that he was of Cyprian birth. He was Cyprian birth. What that means then is that he was from Cyprus. He was from Cyprus. And so let me show you a map of where Cyprus is in relation to, uh, relation to Jerusalem. If you look on the map, you will see uh, on the right-hand side, you'll see Syria and you'll see Lebanon. Just look directly left. There's a, there's a big island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea named Cyprus. And that is where Barnabas originally was from. Now, even though he was from a Greek island, he was not of Greek descent. It tells you in verse 36 that he was uh, a Levite. A Levite. So that already tips the scales to tell you what heritage he had. He was Jewish. If If you're a Levite, you have Jewish heritage because you're from the tribe of Levi, who are often known for their priestly duties in the temple. Now, at some point, for reasons unknown to us, he left Cyprus in order to move to Jerusalem, which turned out to be a life-transforming experience for Barnabas, because this is where he became a follower of Christ. This is where he became a follower of Christ. In verse 32, before Joseph is introduced, or before uh, Barnabas is introduced, um, notice it says, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to them was his own, but all things were common property. So here we have a, a description of the people in Jerusalem at this moment. They're believers, and they're willing to share their goods with others. Barnabas is then mentioned in verse 36 as one of those believers. So here's what we know. He moved from Cyprus to Jerusalem at some point, and at some point he, he was introduced to the gospel of Christ and became a follower. So we know what it is to be a follower of Jesus, there's basically, if you go back to my sermons in the past, there's the ABCD to become a follower of Jesus. At some point, he acknowledged, at some point in his life, he acknowledged that he had sin in his life. And then he, at some point, he also had to believe that Christ did something for his sin, that he died on the cross as a substitute. And C, he confessed his sin, recognizing that Christ died as a substitute for his sins. And D, he then dedicated his life to Jesus as a love expression for what he did for him. And dedicated is, is, is probably the, one of the most important words we can describe of Barnabas. He was dedicated to the Lord in so many ways. And this experience of forgiveness in his life proved to be life-transformational. His experience of forgiveness proved to redefine his purpose as a man. The first thing it did is immediately affected his pocketbook. It affected his pocketbook. Look at verse 30, verse 32 again. The congregation of those who believed were one heart and soul, and not one of them declared that anything belonged to them, but all things were common property. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them. For they were not a needy person among them, for all those who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each one as they needed. One of these men was Barnabas, because in verse 37 it says, he owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, what an amazing testimony to the transformational work of the Lord in his life. This man was clearly wealthy. He clearly did well in life. He had extra. He had surplus. He was rich. 
He had a house and he would have lived somewhere, but he also had an extra piece of property. And when he saw the needs of his fellow believers and that people were in the same position as him who were financially strapped, he opened up his pocketbook, his wallet, and dedicated his money and sold his land for the repurposing to take care of those in need. Knowing Jesus reorientated his use of wealth. Man, what a testimony. What a testimony for us. See, having money is not our issue. If we're blessed enough to be rich, that's fine in God's eyes. It's how we view our riches and what we do with our riches that God cares about. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, Paul writes this to Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for enjoyment. Then he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So having wealth is not an issue. It's what, how you view wealth, and if you love it more than God, and if you're stingy with it. And this is really important for us, church, because what God asks us to do with money is actually different. It, it makes no sense logically. You see, when he says, when he says that you're, you're generous, he says the Lord will provide for you in those ways and be generous back to you in, in abundant ways. Proverbs 11.25 says, A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. What does the world say? If you're generous, you'll actually, you'll actually go bankrupt and you won't be able to enjoy the things that you want to do. So the world's message is save your money, keep it, hoard it, so that you can lesser, have a blessed life. The Bible says, give it away, give it away, and give, you, and give it away so that God will take care of you and be the one who will bless you in return. So again, it's, it's a pretty cool thing. And, and Paul, Paul, or Paul Barnabas understood that the Lord was his provision and would take care of him. Well, that's a huge topic, and we've talked about money a lot in this church, but that's just um, an interesting thought. But one other trait I want to mention before we move on is the nickname he was given. Look in verse 36. He's, his original name was Joseph. His name is Joseph, but it's translated or called uh, son of encouragement because they changed his name to Barnabas. And who gave him that name? The apostles. So the apostles are hanging around with Barnabas, or Joseph, I guess. They're hanging around with Joseph. And after they hang around him a lot, they recognize this man as a man of encouragement. And so they nickname him Barnabas as an as a, a appropriate name for the way his character is. Again, this is a really cool thing to think about. Um, well, first of all, it shows how tight relationally he must have been with the apostles. For them to know his character that well, he must have been hanging out with them quite a bit. Um, but at the same time, it's a really amazing trait to be given a nickname and your life defined by being an encourager. His life is defined by being an encourager. And may that speak to us, church. Many of us go through hardships and times of trouble and distress. And what a, what a word of encouragement can do to us to lift us up out of that funk. Proverbs 12.25 says this, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word, a word of encouragement can make him glad, can bring him up. This is why in Hebrews 10.25, the author says this, encourage one another and all the more as the day draws near. 
A command to Christians, encourage one another as the day draws near. And we know what that means. The day drawing near is a reference to the second coming of Jesus. So we're to be known as encouraging to one another. But this made me think, if he was given the, the, name, the nickname Son of Encouragement, or Barnabas, and that's how his life was defined, it made me wonder if how people would define me. If, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to start yelling out things, <laughs> but I was just curious. Like, I was thinking, how would Genesis House define me? What would be the one word or one line they'd give to define me? To take the pressure off me a little bit, how would they define you? <laughs> right? If the Genesis house was going to, you know, say, Evan, I'm going to give him one liner, or Roger, or Dean, or whatever, you know, Don, like, whatever. How are we going to define these names? It was really fascinating to me to start thinking about this. What would we be known for? What would we be known for? Just something to think about. <laughs> so at some point, while this is all going on with, in Barnabas' life, Paul becomes a believer as well. So Barnabas becomes a follower of Jesus first, and then Paul second. And we know Paul's story. He's a religious terrorist. Basically, think Osama bin Laden, a ISIS leader, you can think Paul. In the name of religion, in the name of religion, he's murdering people, killing them, moving, ripping their families apart, pulling them out of their house, torturing them in the church services, pulling them out of the synagogues and torturing them. I don't know if you ever thought of Paul that way. He's a religious terrorist. That's who he is. And so, you know the story, though. In, in Acts, he comes, Jesus appears to him on the road of Damascus as he's going to persecute the Christians. And Paul is absolutely broken because he can't believe that Jesus, the very person, he's, he's killing people in the name of Jesus, and this Jesus shows up to him and transforms his life. And he's broken, broken man in the presence of the Lord. Well, this is Paul's reality. And so Paul has come to know Christ. And Paul is trying to get in with the disciples and comes to Jerusalem. And this is what it says in 926 of Acts. He was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were afraid of him and did not believe that he had become a disciple of Jesus. Well, for good reason, right? If Osama bin Laden came to Okotoks and said, I'm a follower of Christ, how soon would you be to believe that? You're thinking, that's a ploy. You just want to get into this church and rip them apart. But not Barnabas. Not Barnabas. In verse 27 of, of uh, chapter 9, he was the only disciple in Jerusalem willing to vouch for the transformation of Paul. The only disciple to vouch for the transformation of Paul. He was willing to set aside his past history of persecution and not hold it against him. And it was Barnabas' word that led to the acceptance of Paul amongst the disciples. Again, this speaks once again to his credibility and his influence amongst God's people. Really, really cool. I think he was a man like we spoke about in 1 Corinthians about what love is. Love hopes for all things and love believes all things. Barnabas hoped the best of this man and believed the best of this man. So not long after this, Paul and Barnabas part ways. And next time we see these guys together is in the city of Antioch. So I want to show you Antioch on the map so that you understand where we're going. 
Hopefully you see that black arrow going through the right-hand side of the sea. Cyprus, um, uh, actually, that's not the wrong one. That was supposed to be for the previous slide. <laughs> Here we go. There's uh, Jerusalem is in red down below. And then you'll see a black arrow heading north to Antioch. And you can see where Antioch is. And that is where they, they now are. So let's turn to Acts 11 as a church. We're going to be hitting around uh, 23. But what's happened in the context of Acts 11 is this. Um, as a result of the persecution of Paul in the earlier years, many from Jerusalem had scattered and made Antioch their home. They made Antioch their home, but they began sharing their faith in Jesus Christ. And it led many Gentiles to the Lord. So in Acts 11, they're in Antioch. The persecuted Christians from Jerusalem have come. They've shared their faith. Gentiles are now believers. Well, news of the revival of what happened in Antioch has made it way back to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem people have hear, heard about this. And the, the leaders there are curious as to if what they heard that was going on there was true. And so they want to find out. And guess who they send? They send Barnabas to go find out if what happened in Antioch is, is legitimate. And so again... Once again, it speaks to the credibility and the faithfulness of Barnabas. Of all the people in Jerusalem they could send to Antioch to find out if the revival is true, Barnabas is their guy. And I want you to see the actions he took when he arrived there. There are three aspects of Barnabas' character I don't want you to miss. Look at verse 23 through 26. It says that when he, Barnabas, arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The first thing I want you to notice about Barnabas's character is that he was known as a godly man who sought to encourage others in their faith. He sought to encourage others in their faith. In verse 23, it says that he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. And that's the key phrase. He wasn't just simply an encourager saying, have a good day, church. I hope, you know, you have a great week. It wasn't that kind of encouragement. His encouragement was very specific. I want you, you know, Stephanie, Tony, I want you to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you to always remain faithful to Jesus Christ. That was his word. That was his word. And so if he saw things in your life where they were going awry or whatever, he would be saying, come on, guys, come on, guys. You can, you can like, you know, serve Lord in a better way. Like, you know, get rid of this stuff and, and put on this stuff and, and, and move towards like following Christ in a, in a more committed way. But he's always doing it in an encouraging way and always seeking to build people up. I think that's really important that he was always seeking to help people remain true to the Lord. And it's an important message because we know how compelling the world is. The world's attractive. It's really attractive. It calls you to go against God's way. And so having someone always in your ear saying, go God's way, go God's way, remain true to Christ, remain true to Christ is such an important message, especially when we have moments of weakness. So Barnabas' message was keep your eyes, keep your eyes fixated on Jesus Christ. 
The second thing I want you to notice is that he clearly had a heart for the lost. He clearly had a heart for the lost and a desire to share his faith. In verse 24, at the very end, it says, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. So Barnabas is not only encouraging Christians, he's actually speaking the gospel to non-Christians. And he's got this heart for the lost. You know, I was thinking about this. There's an incredible, incredible verse in Mark 6, 34. You all know the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus feeds the 5,000. You know the story. But here's what's amazing. It's what Jesus says about the crowds who show up to be fed. Look what he says. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. What's the Lord's view of the, there was probably 20,000, right? Because it's 5,000 plus, not including women and children. So let's just go 20. So Okotoks is like 30,000 people. It's like three quarters, like two thirds of, of Okotoks is at the beach, at the shoreline. And he looks at the 20,000 and goes, you are like sheep who do not have a shepherd. And so he took the role of shepherd. Barnabas understood this. He, it says that considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. That means he looked at people and he, he was like, thought like Christ. He saw people being like sheep without a shepherd. And Barnabas wanted people to know who the shepherd was. <laughs> Pretty cool story. Pretty cool reality for us too. And so when we look out in Okotoks, we can, we're not to be judgmental towards the people in Okotoks for the decisions they make. We're to look at them and sympathize with their pain, to have compassion with them, recognize they don't have a shepherd yet. And we're to teach them many things. We need to have an, an evangelistic intentionality about life. The third thing I want to point out is that he recognized that the need for people who come to know the Lord were to be discipled. It wasn't enough just to be saved. There was discipleship was required. Look at verse 25. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, which is Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples are first called Christians in Antioch. Again, a couple things here. First of all, Barnabas' influence amongst the, Paul. Like he, we saw him with influence with the apostles. Look at the influence, the incredibility he has with Paul. He's, he's able to go back to Paul, who's been called specifically by Jesus, and say, would you join me in Antioch to disciple all these Christians? And Paul says, absolutely. It shows how much influence Barnabas had in Paul's life. But here's the key. He didn't just leave them with a simple belief. He says, you need to be discipled. You need, it's not enough just to confess Christ as Lord. You need to be taught in who the Lord is. And it was a full year, a full year. I don't know about you, but I'd have loved to have been part of that uh, discipleship group for that entire year in Antioch. I'd have learned more in one year there than I have in my 15 years of being a follower of Christ. <coughs> Two amazing teachers. So again, we look at um, Barnabas's life. We need to seek to encourage others, have an evangelistic heart, and care about discipling those who come to Christ. So during this time in Antioch, though, God uses Barnabas and Paul once again for another important ministry. 
And this time it has nothing to do with the gospel being spread. It has to do with a crisis that hits the church. In verses, two, in verses 27 through 30 in your Bible, you'll notice that a famine occurs. A famine hits Jerusalem, and they learn about this through a prophet. A prophet, Agabus, has come to, to Antioch from Jerusalem and said, Listen, church, the Lord has told me as a prophet that a famine is coming. And so the Christians in, in Antioch and the Gentile worlds, they decide to pool their finances together to send a relief effort to the fellow believers in Jerusalem. And again, what's significant is who is picked. In verse 30, they sent it in charge of Barnabas and Paul to the elders in Jerusalem. Again, we saw earlier that Paul, uh, Barnabas was um, generous with finances. Now we can see he's free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. Imagine how much money he had to carry in, in like maybe like uh, coins or whatever other uh, financial means they had. The temptation to pilfer from that bag. <laughs> Let's say you're walking with the equivalent of $30,000 Canadian and you, you, there's no e-transfers. It's like, you know, you've got little coinage on your, on your cart. Just want to take one coin for that, that, that donair along the street or... Or for that, you know, that little bottle of Perrier, whatever, right? Just one coin out of that bag. And, and they say, no, we can trust Barnabas to do this. And we know the temptation of money. Judas got in trouble for that very thing. He was the treasurer and he pilfered from the bag. Judas. And here we have Barnabas tr going from Antioch. And we saw how far that was. Antioch to Jerusalem with goodness knows how much money because they trusted him. He was free from the love of money and had no grips in his life. So they deliver the money now to Jerusalem and they head back to Antioch. But in Acts chapter 12 and verse 25, it records that he didn't go alone. They pick up um, someone new, a traveling companion. His name is John Mark and he's Barnabas' cousin. He's Barnabas' cousin and the three of them now travel back to Antioch. And after some time passes now, the leadership of the church are gathered and they're praying and fasting and the Lord speaks to them. And he says in verse chapter 13 and verse 2, and 13 to set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for ministry service. So they're praying and fasting and the Lord speaks to the Holy Spirit and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for ministry service. And so the elders of the church uh, continue to pray and fast and lay hands on these guys. And this is what begins Paul's first missionary journey. Paul did four journeys. This is the first missionary journey, and Barnabas is told to go with him. And again, it's really important. Jesus appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road and says, I'm appointing you to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And here, God wants Barnabas to join him in ministry service. And that makes sense. Look at his character so far. Free from the love of money, generous with money, He's credible amongst the apostles. He's willing to share his faith. He's willing to disciple people. He's willing to encourage people. This guy's the perfect guy to join Paul. Now, one key detail in this first missionary trip, though, is God appointed Mark, sorry, Paul and Barnabas to be the, the main leaders. But we see that Mark is asked to join them and be a helper. So in 13.5, it says that uh, Mark was the helper that joined them. So Paul and Barnabas set apart for missionary work, and they asked John Mark to be part of this as a helper. Well, in, in Acts 13, we learn this didn't turn out so well. 
Not after the, the journey began, it says in 1313 that Mark deserted them. So they bring Mark along because they think he'll be useful in ministry. Initially he was, but in 1313 of Acts, he deserts them. And this is a very important uh, observation because it'll affect the story later. But these men now move through uh, different Gentile regions and everything you expect to be as a follower of Christ uh, came to fruition. There was joy and celebration as many new people came to Christ, but there was much rejection and these two guys faced a lot of persecution. So after the journey is complete, the first journey is complete, they come back to Antioch and they share amongst the people how God had worked and it says that they spent a long time there in Acts 14. They spent a long time in Antioch after the first journey was complete. So a big turn of events then occurs in Acts 15. And you guys will, again, be familiar with this, and some of you may not, so I'll just give you a quick synopsis of this. Um, some Jewish men have come up from Jerusalem to Antioch, and they cause dissension amongst the, uh, the Gentile believers there. They're teaching that circumcision is necessary to be saved. So it's not just about faith in Jesus. You have to observe the law of Moses and be circumcised to be part of God's people. It's necessary for salvation. Paul and Barnabas, in true form, take them to task. And they say, this is not the case at all. And they have a huge debate with these guys, and there's dissension. And it becomes such a confusing issue and an important issue that the church in Antioch asked Paul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem to discuss the matter with the apostles there. What is necessary to be saved? Is the law of Moses necessary to observe or not? And so they go back and they have what was called the Jerusalem Council, probably the most important meeting of all in church history, because it set in motion and in stone what was necessary for, for salvation. So they go through the motions, and there's a huge argument and debate about it, and the conclusion is this. Circumcision is not necessary in order to be saved. It's by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so they go back to Antioch and report all that was done and um, all that was said, and the Gentiles in Antioch rejoice. They rejoice with this news. So the next stop then for Barnabas in his life is found in Acts 15. The Jerusalem council is over. Paul and Barnabas are still in Antioch, and Paul has an idea. He thinks, I want to go back to, to the churches we first planted on the missionary journey and strengthen the believers there. So Paul approaches the, uh, Barnabas with the idea that they should leave and do this and revisit this, the churches so they'd be strengthened. Barnabas agrees, but he has one caveat. He wants to take John Mark along, who previously helped him on their journey. But Paul had other ideas. Barnabas wants to bring Mark, but Paul has other ideas. And look at this with me in 15, in verse 38. 15:38. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the, to the work. And then what, look what happens. There occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches." Barnabas wants to take the, uh, Mark along, who once deserted them, to do ministry. Paul says, not a chance. He deserted us in the past. We don't want him to come. And the, here's these two godly, faithful, appointed by Jesus men. Two men, equally faithful, equally committed to the Lord's work, 
both strong in the Lord, both commissioned by the Lord, and they're in a disagreement. They're loggerheads over what to do. And again, what's key here, it wasn't over core doctrine. They were arguing over what was, they believed was the best way or the most effective way to do ministry. They're arguing over the best way to do ministry and the most effective way to advance the kingdom of God. And Barnabas thinks Mark's the best option, and Paul says no. Now, why is this important? Because there's, not, there's no reference to anyone being sinful here. One hasn't sinned against another. This is, not a, this is not a disagreement where they've sinned against one another. This has to do with effective ways of doing ministry. So I want to make two statements of importance here. First of all, sometimes we think we're not allowed to have disagreements in the church. We're not allowed to have disagreements. Well, from here, we can see that there are. And God doesn't say, or the scriptures say anywhere, that either man is wrong to the other, um, or there's sin involved in this disagreement. I mean, this is why denominations exist, church. This is why they exist. Because we all have different views on what effective ministry looks like. If you belong to the Pentecostal church, you think the most of, best effective way to do ministry and advance the kingdom is through the spiritual gifts, exercising the spiritual gifts. If you're in our denomination, you believe that holy living is actually um, of vital importance. But even within our denomination, each church has its own unique family. Dan and I are constantly in disagreement with our fellow brothers in our denomination about what effective ministry looks like. Genesis House, in fact, uh, this is kind of funny, uh, uh, one of the leaders in our denomination said to me, quote-unquote, you and Dan are like unicorns. You're unicorns. You don't exist in our denomination. Because the way we do ministry at Genesis House is so different than everybody else. But we're all one giant family, and we don't disagree over the core doctrines of the faith. So again, disagreements, but not, um, no sin like involved in this. So I think it's important to recognize that we, all, we can have disagreements over what effective ministry looks like. When it becomes sin is when it becomes factionist over what is uh, having a superiority-inferiority complex. In other words, we are better than you because, or you're less than, us be, or less than us because, or we get treated that way. That's when it becomes divisive and when we've wronged one another. But disagreements over how to do effective ministry in and of itself is not an issue. Second, this proves that ministry is made up of many judgment calls. Many judgment calls. John Piper said this, and I thought he did a great job of, of understanding this. He said, when a decision has to be made, when no specific rule of scripture refers explicitly to your circumstance. A judgment call, according to John Piper, was when a decision has to be made, when no specific rule of scripture refers explicitly to your circumstance. So some commands are clear in Scripture, right? Don't gossip. Okay, gossip is like not something you to do as a follower of Jesus. That doesn't really take much to figure out in terms of the outworkings of that principle. But other things, many decisions have no specific command. And so we have to look to what the principles say and use our wisdom in our heads on how to make these things work out in the community of believers. Maybe this is where the spiritual gifts come in, but we've studied earlier. Remember when the spiritual gifts was words of knowledge, words of wisdom, 
And those things help shape our decisions. Now, I want to say one thing before we come to like an end here. I want to fast forward to how these relationships ended. You might think, well, Paul and Barnabas, that was the splitting of them. There was no reunification. And John, Mark, and Paul in that relationship, no reunification. Not true. You can look these up later. But the Bible records that there was restoration between Paul and Mark. Colossians 4.10, 2 Timothy 4.11. Paul actually told Timothy to send Mark to him because he was, quote-unquote, useful for ministry work. This is after the disagreement. Also, there was reconciliation between Paul and Barnabas. In 1 Corinthians 9.6, we see them doing ministry back together again. There was, if there was any sort of bitterness at first or frustration, all those seeds were gone. There was no lasting resentment. So if we stop there, you think, what a glowing report. I can't live up to this guy, or man, this is like big shoes to fill. Well, remember, I told you that the Bible records our successes and our faithfulness but it also records when people have major blemishes in their walk with the Lord. And Barnabas had one. And we, you can look this up later on yourself and just um, take me at my word now, but you can look it up later and read Galatians chapter 2. Now, this event probably happened after the Jerusalem Council in Acts and before Mark, uh, Paul and Barnabas split ways. So it's somewhere in Acts chapter 15. That's probably where this event occurred. But these guys are in Antioch. Peter, the main guy from, you know, Jesus' right-hand man, comes from Jerusalem to Antioch. He has no qualms about associating with Gentiles as a Jew. He's eating their meals. And remember, Jewish people had to eat clean foods in the Mosaic Law. Well, Peter, because of his newfound faith in Christ, knows that he doesn't have to do it anymore. So he's eating Gentile foods and eating at their tables and associating with them. That was his custom, to always eat with the Gentiles. One day, Jewish missionaries show up in Antioch. Peter, being a Jew, starts to feel the pressure from them because they don't believe that you should eat Gentile foods and associate with Gentiles in the same way. They put the pressure on Peter, or he feels the pressure, and he succumbs to this, and he stops associating with them. Now, you can imagine, pretend I'm Peter, and uh, Tony and Ander are having supper, you know, downstairs, or having a meal downstairs, and I, for like six months, continue to eat with them, eat with them, eat with them. And one day, uh, 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 someone I respect comes into the church who's maybe my mentor or my leader or someone I think is, like, important, and they, and they don't want to associate with them, and then I start to pull away from Tony and Ander, and I, and I don't associate. Imagine the pain in their lives to go, for six months, you've been with me in these ways, and these barriers have been broken down, and now you will have nothing to do with me because this one man shows up and creates this pressure in the church. Well, this is what's going on. And Barnabas follows Peter. Remember his role in Antioch, those three things? He was encouraging the Antioch believers. He, was, he had Paul come down for a year to disciple these guys. He was... Uh, he was like sharing his heart for the lost people. And now he's not associating with these exact same people. He must, like Barnabas and Peter must have absolutely destroyed the church morale. But the worst part is this. They were contradicting the very gospel message they first proclaimed. Their message was what after the Jerusalem council? 
So the, the law of Moses is not necessary to be saved. And what did their behavior demonstrate? You must observe the law of Moses to be saved. Not only was the fellowship broken in the church, the gospel core doctrines were at stake. Their lives were teaching heresy. And so Paul, true to his form, stands up, rebukes Peter publicly in front of the whole church. And he doesn't say he did that to Barnabas, but no doubt Barnabas was, had a talking to by Paul as well behind closed doors. Imagine the forgiveness this must have taken on the church's part to get over this, and Paul's to get over this as well. It's a reminder to us that even the strongest of believers can, have, can fall into sin. And, and this is why Jesus' comments to us in Luke 9.23 are so important. Don't, he, says, he says, if you want to be a follower of mine, deny yourselves daily and take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourselves daily. Not once when you proclaim Christ like eight years ago. It's a daily commitment to Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul Barnabas understood anyway in the beginning, right? He encouraged people to be true to the Lord. It's a daily decision. You deny the flesh and walk by the Spirit. And the Acts records nothing else in Barnabas' history. That's the end of his story. We don't know anything more. But we have enough to have lessons. Lesson number one. In seeking to emulate Barnabas as a faithful follower of Jesus, we should strive towards these things. Being generous with our finances. Remember, that's what he did. He sold a tract of land to take care of fellow believers. He was, a, he was free from the love of money. He was the one who carried the, the, the relief to Jerusalem. Number two, seek to encourage others. Seek to be encouraging to one another. Build one another, but build one another up as the day of the Lord draws near. As to be our, that's what it's like to live in following Barnabas. She can uh, seek to share her faith with others, to tell people about the love of Jesus Christ. And if they come to know the Lord, disciple those who want to know more about Christ. This, this is the mark of, 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 uh, of Barnabas' life. That was his daily commitments, his daily tasks. And I realize all of you are different stages of life. And that's why I said strive towards. And God will gift you in different ways and put you in different scenarios. So all I'm saying is this. You don't, I'm not saying we all have to be exactly at Barnabas' level to be, to be loved by the Lord. I'm not saying that. It's not a performance thing to be accepted. It's simply this. We strive towards these things. He's a model to us for a reason. And so we look to, to God to ch change our lives to be more like Barnabas. Lesson number two, when disagreements over ministry effectiveness occur within the Christian community, it doesn't necessarily mean that one is divisive or has even sinned against the other. The issue is, church, when you're factious about it, when you have a superiority-inferiority complex. And another key area is when there's unity over core doctrines. Like if you're arguing over like the law of Moses being necessary for salvation, that's a disagreement that requires division. But we're talking about how to do effective ministry. And every family, every church family is different. The communities they're in dictate this. The, the people who are in your church and the gifts they, 
they have all dictate these things. And finally, even the most faithful followers of Jesus can get caught up in sin and fall astray. Even the most faithful followers can. Past experiences, past giftedness, past usefulness are not a guarantee of future obedience. And here's the thing, though. Repentance is key. If you repent, it says, that, First John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. This is the key, Lord. Key for us. Okay, let's, let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the morning. We uh, see the work of, that you've done in Barnabas' life, and it's too bad in a way we don't know what his life was like before, because if we were to learn that, I think a lot of us could probably relate to his stage of life. But I think the most important thing is wherever he was at, Lord, he, he, he was transformed significantly by your spirit. Uh, we see this man rededicating his life in, in, a, in a huge way, and you affected his life in many areas. As uh, we grow in our faith and grow in our knowledge of you, and by the power of your spirit, I pray that you would shape us in all these areas as well. Financially, um, uh, in our characters, um, the way we encourage one another, the opportunities you give us to share our faith, all of these areas, Lord. So again, uh, I look forward to seeing Barnabas in glory and uh, having conversations with him about uh, some of the details of these events um, and, uh, yeah, the victories that you caused in his life. So again, we thank you for your word and how it speaks to us very contemporary for today. In Jesus' name, amen.